Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Chalfus. No apologies for returning to the topic of breastfeeding. In fact, I promised I would do just that. At the end of the previous episode on mother's milk, Amy Brown pointed out that because babies aren't see-through, like a bottle, mothers worry about how much their baby's getting. And that's a worry that pushes many mothers to formula and see-through bottles. And it might surprise you to know that the Italian fascists had an answer. It's called the doppia pesata, the double weighing. You weigh a child before you breastfeed. You look at the clock. Supposedly, the infant latches on immediately. You breastfeed for a certain amount of time. And then you put the baby back down on the scale to determine the exact amount of breast milk that they've consumed. That's Diana Garvin, a historian of fascism, especially as it relates to food. You may remember I talked to her about fascists and coffee. Anyway, the fascists were very keen on motherhood. Mother's Day in Italy was invented during the fascist period, and it fell at a different time of year. It was December 24th. Which is why this is going out today, 92 years later. Um, originally meant to coincide with the Mother Mary's labor pains, ostensibly. But of course, there were ulterior motives. The Italian fascist regime regarded breastfeeding as a form of mass production belonging to the state. Benito Mussolini had famously said, nothing against the state, nothing outside the state. And that meant that every single person belonged to the regime and everything that they produced, whether it was chemicals in a factory in the city, whether it was wheat in a country field, or whether it was even breast milk to feed a child, belonged to the regime. The regime may have regarded mother's milk as belonging to them, but they also put some effort into sweetening the deal for mothers. They built a series of new obstetric clinics that were entire healthcare centers. So they included cafeterias to feed breastfeeding mothers. They included breastfeeding rooms. The idea was that um, that the regime would be able to control what a mother ate uh, with the ultimate goal of creating stronger, healthier Italians to be the soldiers and mothers of a super generation to come. It was part of an industrialization of motherhood as a whole. The regime believed that they would be able to control the exact times that an infant would feed and that they would be able to control the exact amount. So the orario, which is uh, this timed schedule for breastfeeding a child, went hand-in-hand hand with another method, which is called the doppia pesata, the double weighing. But it seemed to totally disrupt the magic of the process. And that's a friend of mine, Susan, who, as a fresh young American, settled in Rome, got married, and had a baby, Italian-style. It was very stressful. 
Uh, it made me very, very conscious that I was very responsible for getting all of the nutrition my child needed into him. Uh, the measuring him before and trying to understand how many grams of milk he actually took in, 60, 70, 80. It was all completely abstract to me. It seemed to have nothing to do with looking at him, seeing if he was happy, having a good feed. Uh, it, uh, it made me feel terribly inadequate. Uh, for me, coming from the United States, uh, being uh, expected to understand this whole process, uh, was, uh, was, was a very big shift. Uh, when a child is hungry, a child screams for food. And uh, my son had incredible lungs. And when he was hungry, uh, you knew it instantly. And you could never feed him fast enough. It was... Oh my God, he's crying in another hour and a half. Oh, did he not even then have enough? You know, is it, is it sufficient to know intellectually that he, that he ate 90 grams and think, okay, so he should be satisfied? Well, what if he isn't? What do the grams have to do with anything? It, 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 I felt at the end I just didn't know if he'd had enough. And then, and then if he cried an hour later, two hours later, was it because uh, he didn't have enough over the arc of a day, over the arc of two days, that particular feeding? You know, um, also, I'm not a numbers person. So maybe if I had been more of a scientific bent, it wouldn't have been such an effort for me. But for me, it was a terrible effort. And... Um, uh, I don't know. Um, I just, I think because of the stress of that, I didn't last more than two and a half months breastfeeding. This was in the 1980s, not the 1930s. The fascist past certainly has a way of clinging on. The question arises, of course, of why, beyond the need for workers and cannon fodder, why did the regime feel it necessary to intervene in motherhood? The mother could not be relied on. Mothers were viewed as being inherently irrational. <laughs> the word rational and rationalism was really a byword for this period. What it means is ruling with thought and science rather than with gut feeling. Mothers were seen as being more allied with nature, as being more sentimental, and fascism was trying to drive against those ideas. Splendid. Rationality rules. But rational is not quite the same as logical. Mussolini might have been able to 
tell a black shirt soldier what to do, but you actually cannot tell a two month year old what to do. <laughs> so timed, so timed breastfeeding does not work. And yet the regime continued to push this type of uh, mothering behavior, um, even against evidence that it was not producing stronger, better babies. The semblance of a new mathematical, rational approach to breastfeeding actually mattered more than feeding babies more milk. Okay, so the timed feeding and the double weighing didn't really work. But to me, a lot of the efforts the fascists made to support mothers and infants seem quite progressive. So many of the fascist regime interventions appear progressive on the surface. Things like introducing breastfeeding rooms to factories. It's something that we still don't have particularly widespread in the United States today, despite legislation promoting it. At the same time, the intention behind interventions like this was incredibly regressive. The idea was to get as much work, both productive and reproductive, out of mothers as possible. And despite the regime claims that a woman's place was in the home, they desperately need as many Italians working in both fields and factories as possible. And even fascist beggars can't be choosers. So the maternity clinics specifically also welcomed unmarried mothers. Women who were unmarried under the fascist regime found themselves in a very difficult and a very strange position. Because on one hand, they were still celebrated as mothers. There was almost a martyrdom about them in the official rhetoric. These women would like to be productive members of our society. They would like to have the full family. And lacking a breadwinner, they are going to take up that work. The regime is so concerned with promoting demographic power, because we are still in a period where a large population is equivalent to a nation's military might, that in some senses, being unmarried but still keeping your child overrode concerns for whether a mother was married or not. The thing is, while a regime could encourage mothers, married and unmarried, to breastfeed, and offer them special meals and special places to promote breastfeeding, not all women could breastfeed, and not all women wanted to. So how did the regime deal with that? Generally speaking, they would prefer to see a baby fed, and they did prefer wet nursing as a practice to the use of other animal milks. Wet nursing was actually big business for much of the early 20th century, it was, at the time, as common as hiring a cook, hiring a maid, very widespread practice for the nascent middle class and above. There were even uh, wet nursing centers where you could uh, drop off your child for the day or you could hire a wet nurse to live in your home. There are, however, rafts of press from the period. In fact, I remember a poll, a poll of Roman doctors and pediatricians that framed, quote, the problem of the wet nurse as being one of hygienic and unhygienic environments, because some of these places that wet nurses worked were um, 
well, they described them as, uh, I believe, lurid and fetid dens, <laughs> um, environments that were altogether unhealthy. In terms of that uh, anti-wet nursing push, it looks like it was largely aimed at women that did have the ability to breastfeed, but who chose not to. What the regime really seemed to object to um, was women making that choice. And there's another idea that clings on. In the end, I do wonder why the fascists latched onto breastfeeding. Maybe because it is the perfect embodiment of an idea very dear to them, the idea of self-sufficiency. Breastfeeding, in many ways, is the ultimate foodway. It's the oldest, tightest, simplest foodway. So it provides a useful metaphor for thinking about what the regime aspired to do, which is to achieve autarky, ultimate economic independence from trade partners that would allow it to act unilaterally in terms of military aggression on the world stage. And in some ways, the fascist regime never managed to do what mothers and infants did every day. Was that a failure? I would say that it was. I hated that book. I hated the pencil. I hated the balance. I hated the whole thing. Weighing, weighing a child, a screaming child, going for the book, to, for the numbers even afterwards, doing all of those, those, those little technical things so remove you, I think, from the natural beauty of the process. If I had been a more scientific type, maybe it wouldn't have weighed so heavily on my heart and soul, but it certainly did. <laughs> I, I didn't really want it to be in, in, the, in the way, in the way of us, of being a mother and child. Thanks to my friend Susan for sharing her memories of being a young mum in Rome and to Diana Garvin for her scholarship of fascism and food. And in addition to her new book, Feeding Fascism, there's also a couple of papers that I'll link to in the show notes. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions for some of the music. And by now you surely know the drill. The show notes are at eatthispodcast.com. There's a transcript there too, and donations from supporters help to make the transcript and other things possible. I'd love for you to join them at eatthispodcast.com slash supporters. And there's one more thing. The best possible holiday gift you could give me would be to do the word of mouth thing and persuade a friend or colleague to subscribe to the podcast. The little bit of promotion I managed to do is getting harder and harder thanks to the goings-on at the various, quote, free, unquote, platforms. So I'm not sure how else to bring the podcast to the attention of people who might be interested. I'm going to take a break for about a month. I hope you have a great time, whatever you're doing, and I look forward to being with you in the new year. Till then, from me, Jeremy Chervis, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening.